Welcome to the Radical Remission Project Stories That Heal podcast. My name is Kelly A. Turner, and I'm a PhD cancer researcher, New York Times bestselling author of Radical Remission and Radical Hope, and the founder of the Radical Remission Project. In this podcast, it is our honor to bring you inspiring healing stories directly from radical remission survivors themselves, as well as from the amazing doctors and healers they work with. As a reminder, the Radical Remission Project is not against conventional medicine, and we fully support an integrative approach to healing. Most of all, we hope that this Stories That Heal podcast will inspire and educate you along your healing journey. Welcome to the Radical Remission Stories That Heal podcast. Today's episode is with Di Foster. Di Foster is that girl next door. From the age of 13, she knew what she wanted in life and career, affectionately known as Plan A. At 31, her life hit a wobble when she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Then at age 38, a terminal secondary cancer. Di switched her focus and Plan B was devised. She began learning how to live life differently than she had intended. Following her heart's whispers, she set out to live the best 365 days. And 13 years later, she is still here and loving life. Having experienced a radical remission with no medical intervention, her body healed. She now shares her story and the lessons learned on the way. So maybe you don't have to. Di Foster is a mind shifter, business simplifier, and just so happens to have an epic story. Welcome, Di. We're so glad to have you on with us today. Good morning. So we've got you on and we've got lots of questions for you, but ultimately we really just want to hear your epic story. So if you could start by telling us briefly about your diagnosis, what you were diagnosed with, when and how, and then we'll go from there. Awesome. Um, I guess it starts back, I'm going to start, for you guys, I'm going to start right back at the beginning because I think quite often I, I start off with my terminal diagnosis, where actually I'm just going to give you a bit more of the backstory. I think um, I think the first part of it is I don't have any IgA in my blood, which means that I don't have the immunoglobulin IgA, or I have very, very, very little. And so how that um, came about was from the age of 13, I had some quite severe chest infections. And through you know, the, the wisdom at the time, I was put on quite a lot of antibiotics for about five years. So, you know, every couple of times a year, I'd get a chest infection and they put me on antibiotics. But I figured out really quickly that they didn't really work that well for me. They got rid of the infection, but I just seemed to be left with just not feeling that great afterwards. So from about the age of 17, I stopped taking antibiotics and I just started playing with what worked for me and that was keeping moving moving the you know the infection away and just really starting to look after myself and at the same time I noticed that there were certain foods that um, didn't seem to agree with me and I came off dairy at that time as well um, so yeah so that it kind of like really starts back then and I think the reason I say that is because that 
the amount of antibiotics at such a young age probably didn't set me up for the greatest of health because I seem to be quite a sensitive person. And so the other part of my IgA is that, not my immunoglobulins, the other part of my immune system is that I have probably about, I think it's about 20 times as much IgE as one needs. So I have a tendency not to be allergic to things, but to react to things, if that makes sense. I tend to be intolerant um, or just don't do great with them, and I have a tendency to react. So today I don't have a cold, I have just a little bit of hay fever. Mm. So um, it's spring here in New Zealand, so that kind of gives you a little bit of background. So in my 20s what happened was that I found that I had um, started getting autoimmune um, things, you know, like uh, leaky gut, um, I had alopecia, and then um, just, you know, like I, I wasn't getting a lot of chest infections because I really looked after myself at the front end and figured out what to do around that sort of thing. But in my 20s, I found out that it was the fact that I didn't have IgA. So I kind of think that sets up the story to being when I was 31, I was diagnosed with uh, breast cancer. And uh, so that's, you know, like that's 20 years ago now. Um, and it was a bit of a shock, really, because I'd always been, you know, I'd always been, you know, fit and healthy and uh, no family history or anything like that. So it was a bit of a shock. And um, it, it came about because I had dropped a little bit of weight. I was training for something and I literally found it myself in my breast when I was just literally in the shower washing. Um, so that was a bit of a shock, and I had quite a, a large lump, and as the surgeon said, this is not the goal at 31. Very, very cute surgeon telling you, the issue, die is that we have a very substantial lump and a very small breast. It's like, you know, that wasn't the goal in life to be told by the cute surgeon. Right. I had small, but anyway, <laughs> um, so at that time, every time I meditated, um, and interestingly enough, I had just been to John D. Martini's course literally one day before I was diagnosed and I knew that there were other ways in my heart but every time I meditated I just got like this ticking time bomb it was like actually you don't have time to figure this out you need to you need to do the things that you need to do so I did and I did them um I would say I worked really hard on my mindset. So when I went in for surgery, because I've had a right mastectomy, um, I didn't get reconstruction. Um, I just went in knowing that it was my choice. You know, I never once thought that they were telling me I had to do something. They were telling me I had to do something, but I would take three days and say, I'm going to think about it and then I'll come back. And I think that was a really interesting um part for me you know I I never ever felt like I had to do anything every time I went in like I was choosing to get the surgery this was my choice I wasn't angry with anybody else this was my choice and so I had surgery and I had radiotherapy and chemotherapy and you know like 20 years ago it was it was a bit rough I'd have to say um and I did have this one thought afterwards I thought if anything ever happens I'm, I'm not doing that again and like I didn't think about it I just remember it being there's a few things in my life that have been like a bolt of lightning and I just remember thinking that now I would have gone back and thought well hey Di you don't need to get anything else in order for that to be you know I'm probably working a bit differently but anyway um seven years later I moved to Christchurch 
and I was just things were a bit rough with my health and I didn't know whether it was excessive hay fever or you know I was getting chest infections that I'd never had you know for a long time and when I went to the um, GPs they just wouldn't listen to me I really struggled with them getting to listen to me I was like don't don't argue with me about the antibiotics don't worry about that don't, don't worry about that I'm not going to take antibiotics listen to what I'm saying which was why am I getting these chest infections why am I getting these chest infections that I can usually manage why is that happening and why am I just constantly unwell because I literally was unwell for a year on and off so um, you were looking for the root cause but they weren't willing to go there with you they just really fixated on the fact that I wouldn't take antibiotics. And I said to them, it's really simple. Test my sputum. It comes up. It's not bacteria. It's not it, It's not going to... The antibiotic antibiotics. won't do a thing. So why am they're I taking it? Yeah. Yeah. They're just going to make me feel unwell, you know, and, and all the other things that they do. And I'm not anti antibiotics. It's just time and place. So that was the thing that the IGA had taught me is that um, I never was to take antibiotics unless I'd had it tested. Mm. So, um, so yeah, so it was seven years later and um, wasn't feeling great and had got, had a really good summer holiday and came back and thought, right, I'm really going to, I'm going to get better this year. And the first thing I did was go to karate and I got a hit to the chest. Oh. And I remember my knees buckling and I remember just, this wave came over me and I thought, holy shit, this is, this something's not right. Mm. And um, the guy put his hand on my shoulder and said, are you winded? And I said, no. And he said, well, get back up then. And I remember being the angriest I've ever been and trying to take his head off. I just stormed down that dojo and I was trying to hit him in the head. I was just like swimming, like I was so angry. And um, we finished that fight and I just left. I just excused myself and left and I went um, around my husband was around the corner and I said I'm not well something's wrong um, and I went home and went to bed for a couple of days um, and then very quickly I what happened was within a four-week period I had a fully collapsed lung and I was just you know like I was like I'm in trouble I don't I, and I couldn't get a diagnosis I just I just couldn't get anyone to I don't know, just take me seriously. So anyway, um, luckily I had a contact and I rung him and he said to me, I want you to ring the sports doctor. He cannot help you except he will get you a diagnosis. Mm. So he's quite well known in Christchurch. And so he just pushed it through to say, I want you to see this girl now and I want you to tell me what's wrong with her. Um, so really quickly, I got a diagnosis of terminal cancer, um, metastasized in my lungs from the previous breast cancer and it was expected that I would have no more than 12 months with actually 0% chance of lasting 18 months. Wow. It could be scary, frustrating, anger producing, all of the emotions, right? No. No? It wasn't those things. Really? No. What did it bring no. up for you? Huge gratitude. Oh. Just like an overwhelming sense and perspective that um, literally while I was talking to the oncologist and they were giving me the diagnosis you know my mother would tell you that this was the miracle was that I shut up long enough to listen mm -hmm. um, I never listened to the oncologist I just listened to my own heart 
And I just, the first thing I remember was just like, um, die if you've only got 365 days on this earth, then for God's sake, choose happy. Mm-hmm. You know, whenever you can, just be happy. And I've always been, uh, you know, like a, a happy disposition, so to speak, you know. Um, but, I, you know, like, but I've always been really serious as well. You know, like I've always taken everything really seriously. And the perspective change in that was just like, just this overwhelming sense of, um, you know, you are in this situation. It's hard to get wrap your head around, but you are in this situation. Now, what are you going to do? Mm. And the second thing I heard was, you know, from my own heart was, let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food go natural and I had no idea what that meant but I just knew that I was in the candy store and I was looking for fruit and veg and Mm. so I removed myself from the medical system because of the pressure and I felt so fragile I didn't want anyone to touch me I didn't want needles I didn't want anything and so I removed myself from the medical system not because I thought I could heal myself but because if I only had 365 days, then I wanted them to be my days. And I didn't want them to be overridden by somebody telling me what to do. And then the third thing I heard was be grateful, which I'm pretty sure I snorted out loud. And I th- I must, the oncologist must have looked at me and thought, really? And I snorted out loud and thought, what do I have to be grateful for? I'm 38 years old. I've moved to Christchurch to be with the love of my life that I've just met. Last weekend we were supposed to be married, but we didn't because I'm so unwell. What the frig do I have to be grateful for? And my little heart whispered, you've got 365 days to figure it out, sweetheart. Wow. That's amazing. I love that. I think there there are so many nuggets that you've just shared, but um, I I really want to focus the hearing your story about... um, you know, as we refer back to the healing factors, a lot of times with the increasing positive emotions, I mean, you were kind of, that sounds like that fueled you so incredibly over that 365 days, because that was at the root of your, you know, I'm going to be happy. Yeah, it was. And I think that the the real work when I left was around, um, I had the sense that there was not going to be anything in my body or any negative experience or anything that I had perceived, you know, as somehow I needed to forgive someone or I needed to forgive myself going to be left um, untouched. So, you know, the daily work was literally just, you know, looking back on things and thinking, how do I feel about that? You know, and so the, you know, the, the positive emotion was there, but I think that's kind of naturally there for me. Yeah. So for me, it was around, looking back on things and, and telling a different story, you know, just take picking up everything and retelling that story to myself. And so just reframing, reframing the things you told yourself in the past, telling a different story. I love it. Yeah. yeah, And a hundred percent. And I think that if, you know, if there's one thing that I'm really good at, or I've got good at, good at it because I've had to, is I can reframe the shit out of anything doesn't matter what happens. My father said to me once, if a pig flew in here and killed me, you know, a flying pig flew in this room and killed me, you would have something positive to say about it. (laughs) In which I told him that um, quite often our life's purpose is fulfilled only by our death. In which he started throwing things at me and I had to run out of the room. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's a pretty profound statement. Life's purpose is only fulfilled by death. Sometimes our life purpose can be fulfilled by our own death. That's interesting. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I said that to my dad before, probably in, in the in-between diagnoses. Yeah. Yeah. So what are um what are some of the other factors from the radical remission 10 healing factors that really resonated with you that were influential in your healing journey? I, I think the the thing that I noticed the most, you know, because since being in the book, I've had a lot of phone calls and a lot of chats with people. And the thing that I notice about myself is I take like radical responsibility for my own health. I'm not blaming anybody else. I'm not looking for anybody else to save me. I take radical responsibility for myself and where I'm at. That would be one of the key things that um, that's really important to me. And, you know, like just even in the surgery and things like that, you know, 31 years old and coming out with one breast, you know, I have never never regretted that surgery I've never been angry with anybody about it I had an I and which leads into the second thing is around intuition you know I was dating somebody at the time and I'm not sure that he necessarily agreed with my choices but in my heart I knew that I would meet somebody one day that I would be more comfortable with naked than I was on my own you know like I would be so comfortable with them and I remember <laughs> meeting my husband and coming out of the bathroom butt naked, which I never do things like that. And I remember thinking, I feel like, I remember thinking, that just felt like the most natural thing in the world for me. And, you know, he met me after my surgery, and it's just never been an issue. A gift so to I, have that level of comfort and ease with a, a person, and really just having that support that you may not have even realized you were getting until those kind of ahas. And, and, and it took work. I, I remember I remember at one stage, um, must have been post, you know, a couple of years after um, my surgery, thinking I'm really struggling with how I look, you know, like it wasn't that I regretted the surgery, but I struggled with how I looked. And I remember thinking I, I need to kind of fall in love with this body again. And I remember, you know, like I've always, I've always been very aware of how I look or not, not aware of how I look. I'm, I've been very honest with, you know, the way I look, you know, I know that I'm not a classic beauty. I know that I'm not, you know, um, when I was 12, a guy said to me, you will never be the prettiest girl in the room, but you'll always be the most interesting. And I remember thinking, I can work with that. And, and this is the reframe thing. You know, like, I'm sure some people would take that as an offense. I was like, I'm going to spend the rest of my life working on being interesting because I do not have the time, energy or incl inclination to worry about what this face looks like. It's like, why would I worry about that? And so I remember one time thinking, I just need to fall in love with this body again. And I remember looking down at my right toe, my right big toe, not any other toes, just my right big toe thinking, my God, that's a great toe. Like, <laughs> there is nothing wrong with that toe. And I remember the next day thinking, that toe beside it is amazing too. I, I love them. They're amazing. So, you know, I worked around my entire body and fell in love with my body again. And I think quite often 
we you know and I'd say I've never loved my butt that much but you know I remember thinking when I when I a couple of boyfriends or you know like people that I've dated have been obsessed with it so it's like obviously there's something okay with it it's all right you know like <laughs> so finding the good in it whether I see it or not mm-hmm. amazing nice so your diagnosis came before Dr. Kelly Turner did her research and wrote the book, which came out in 2015. When did you find the book? How did you come across it? And, and what did you think when you found it? My medical herbalist mentioned it um, in about, I would say, about 2016. It must have been about 2016, because that's when I started telling my story. Um, when the book came out, it almost felt like it gave me permission that I could talk about my story. Because um, while I understand a lot of things inherently, I might not be able to sort of articulate them in a framework. So I felt that her book gave a great framework to be able to discuss with people some of those things that I made. Like when I read it, I remember thinking I did all of this. I just did it intuitively, mm-hmm. but every single one of those things I did in one form or another. That's awesome. Yeah. Many of us that are survivors that have read the book, you know, after the fact, I feel the same way. Like I did the same thing. It was very affirming, like go through the table of contents, which is the 10 healing factors, check, 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 did all those. And there were a couple that I needed to look into a little bit more, but yeah, the research really supported that intuition was right on target and and things were happening as they should yeah yeah and you talked about um you know the emotions and the reframing kind of looking back at things would you categorize that reframing that you did of past events as as your way of releasing suppressed emotions kind of looking back at things that were less positive that needed to be 100 percent yeah, yeah a- absolutely. That was definitely the process that I went through when I looked back at them. I call it, um, when I explain it to people, I, I feel like it was like, you know, um, I'm this tree. I'm this beautiful, beautiful tree. And it was like there were weeds in my garden. And so some of the bigger weeds I had to pull out and accept and, you know, like kind of work around. But then at the bottom there were stones and some of them were covered in moss and dirt and buried. and I just calmly picked them up, looked at what they were, and I just polished each stone. And I feel that um, that was how I dealt with it. It's just, you know, I know people do it differently. Some people like to explode things, but I I just kind of feel like I like to keep them, but I reframe them. And so I polished my stones and put them back down. And it was like, I think for me, it was about 18 months, 14 to 18 months of just polishing stones, tidying my garden, and just really working on that sort of space you know um that's kind of the way I sort of in telling the story imagine it it's kind of like you know I'm this tree and I had some things literally choking me that I needed to deal with and I just quietly got on with my garden yeah that's a lovely analogy hey this is Carla are you ready to learn the 10 healing factors that have helped 1500 plus survivors overcome the odds Join Liz and I for a Radical Remission Retreat at Omega Institute of Holistic Studies in Rhinebeck, New York on May 24th through the 26th, 2024. 
you will experience three days of relaxation and beauty on the Omega campus. If you have any doubts, just know that researchers at Harvard have completed a pilot study to analyze the benefits of the Radical Remission Workshop and the online course for cancer patients. Specifically, the research study looked at the impact that the workshops have on patients' quality of life and dietary habits. The results are currently being analyzed and are very promising. Check out RadicalRemission.com events to find the Omega Retreat and other virtual and in-person workshops. The Radical Remission Foundation is our nonprofit whose mission is to advance the education and support scientific research on the topic of radical remissions. Researchers at Harvard have completed a pilot study to analyze the benefits of the Radical Remission Workshop and online course for cancer patients. Specifically, the research is looking at the impact that the workshop and online course may have on patients' quality of life and dietary habits. The results are currently being analyzed and are very promising. If you'd like to support the Radical Remission Foundation as we continue researching radical remissions, please consider making a donation at www.radicalremission.com forward slash donate. In addition to continuing the research, the foundation will offer scholarships to those in need of financial support in order to participate in a radical remission workshop. We believe that this information should be accessible to everyone who needs it. Please consider donating today at RadicalRemission.com forward slash donate. No amount is too small and every donation is appreciated. Visit RadicalRemission.com forward slash donate to learn more today. So Di, tell us what happened on um, day 366. See, this is what's really interesting. In, you know, when I review my, you know, when I hear myself you know talk about things or I think about things um no different than what happened on day three in day five in day 500 nothing nothing different at all because um it is a thing that I've been thinking about a lot is around healing you know like what healing is because the most common thing people ring me about or email me about is they say I have to heal you know, like I, this has to happen. And for me, it's like, no, it doesn't. That's like, I, I don't even understand that language. Like there, there are no guarantees with this. And it's like, we treat healing like an outcome, like, you know, this thing that once it happens, everything's going to be okay. Where I just kind of thought that um, this is my life. That this is what right do I have to ask for any more days unless I'm doing flipping amazing with this one day I have, which is today. And so my 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 whole philosophy is around each day. And it, and it was illustrated by the fact that when um about I don't know, a couple about a month after I was diagnosed, a really good friend of mine. Um, well, actually, not a, a guy that I trained with um, said, can we have afternoon tea with you on Sunday, which was a big no-no. It was like, I didn't invite people into my bubble. I was so protective of my own energy, and only very few people got to come into my house. But he got me on a, a quite an, on an off day or, you know, on a vulnerable moment where I said yes. 
and they arrived and he had this white box and I thought whatever's in that box I want it was kind of like I imagine in America if you get 12 red roses they come in a rectangle white box you know <laughs> so um they came in and, and they'd lived in Japan for a long time and they're very much about ceremony and process and all of that sort of stuff and eventually eventually Glenn stood up and said, um, you know, in Japan they have a myth about the origami crane and it means longevity and, and you know, like, um, you know, it, it, if you fold a thousand, then you get you can get a wish. And if you fold a thousand for somebody, then you get to give them a wish. And he opened this box and it was like these thousand cranes flew to me. And, you know, the idea is that, you know, it took me three days to decide what my wish was going to be. And the idea is that you hang them outside and in the rain and the sun and the wind and the snow, they deteriorate. And as they deteriorate, it means that your wish is coming true. And so, you know, they end up in the garden and down the driveway. And and it was such a beautiful gift for me. And it, and it um, the biggest thing was just, you know, it took me three days to decide what that wish would be. And I think the, the interesting thing for me is that I think most people assume what my wish would be. It would be the assumption that I wanted to be well. And it never occurred to me to wish for that. Hmm. Wow. What a beautiful gift. Yeah, that is, that's amazing. I love that. I mean, what, did they actually make the, the cranes themselves? Oh, 100%. They folded all a thousand wow. of them. I could actually... Um, I've actually got what's left of them, which is a tiny wee, they're in my office here somewhere, don't know where they are, there's about five or six of them left, and what amazes me is nobody asked me what my wish was. Which I was I going to, but I wasn't yeah. sure, <laughs> do you want to keep it private? <laughs> no, I don't, because I think it tells a story, because my wish was that every day I was given that I would make the very, very most of it mm. and that I would live each day as best I could and that my family would as well and every day that I was given. And for me, that that kind of, of all the things that I could tell you, that to me kind of explains the most about how I think and that and how I think about healing and how I think about life and how I think about you know, why 366 that number of day was no different to five. You know, yeah, it I mean, sounds it like was, you have an incredible ability to let go of the outcome and just live in the present. And that is, I mean, if nothing else for our, our audience to hear that, um, that presence really is quite inspirational. Well, you know, ultimately, what is the outcome? Right. For all of us, where I like Carla likes to say, none of us are getting out of here alive. <laughs> mm -hmm. This is the thing that, that my mind gets blown on is that people are like, it's like, did you not get the memo? We're all going to die. You know, and so this is the thing that astounds me is that like, I remember just feeling like, well, that's going to come a little bit quicker than I thought. You know, that's a bit of a bugger. So I remember thinking, it's going to come a little bit quicker than I thought, you know, like I'm not getting out of this alive. And it's just, you know, like, but, I, but I remember thinking, if I've only got 365 days, how do I get 365 lifetimes in, in that time? And there's a book that um, I've done martial arts for 27 years, our 
ahead of our style in New York wrote, and it's called One Day, One Lifetime. And it's this philosophy of, you can look at it two different ways, but it's the philosophy of either living a lifetime in a day or that our lifetime is made up day by day. And so that type of philosophy for me has just been, I don't know, I guess part of me, you know, just thinking about it like that. And yeah, I, I think that that to me is the real um, is, is the real shift. You know, people think that somehow I'm right because I've healed and I don't look at it like that. I, I just think that is just a bizarre way of thinking because, you know, as I said before, sometimes our love purpose is fulfilled through our death. You know, like we, we only know so much being here. And, and even if, you know, like my brother's an atheist and I like to think, I love that thought of living like an atheist, you know, and the fact that, well, if there is nothing else, we might as well do the best with what we've got today and make the most of this lifetime. Yeah. Yeah, everybody could stand to uh, think about that a little bit more often. And I think we, you know, constantly get those kind of messages, but it sounds like you're living it day by day. And um and it and so is this you talked about being grateful right for for the diagnosis is is this where the gratitude comes from and that you have learned to live every day to the fullest i wouldn't say i was grateful for the diagnosis i think that's a bit of a stretch um you know like it's one of those things you might accept it doesn't mean that you you know um i'm certainly grateful for the perspective that i got from it mm -hmm. you know and i'm grateful for you know like um we haven't even touched this, but 14 months after I was diagnosed, you know, I felt really well. And my husband said to me, holy cow, you're a pain in the ass again. <laughs> you know, I'm pretty sure you're okay. And I was like, yeah, I think I am too. And he said, what do you want to do with the rest of your life, our lives? And I said, I want to have a baby. And he said, oh, sweetheart. He said, we've been through five and a half thousand earthquakes. You know, we've relocated two of our businesses. Our house, we don't even know if we can live in anymore. We're living at your sister's. Do you reckon that's a good idea? And I said, yeah. I said, but I'm not having children after I'm 40, so you've got six weeks. That's it. <laughs> and he said, sweetheart, we're living at your sister's. There's six of us here. There's no action going on. And I said, it's okay. I've booked a weekend away at Akaroa. You've now got three nights. That's it. Three nights. Let's just say that dark chocolate port and taking care of business was, was the only thing that happened for three days. <laughs> the previous 14 months. Um, and I gave birth to our one and only child, Jackson, three weeks before my 40th birthday. Oh, my gosh. That's yeah. fabulous. What a, it is that's fabulous. a gift, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, as my, my mum and dad say that he's a miracle, but I like to point out that, no, no, come on, guys, back to me. It's me. <laughs> He's just the result of a good shag, I tell them. Um, you know, it's just like killing the farm people. But, you know, I discovered that weekend that my husband performs exceptionally well under pressure. Mm -hmm. You know, he does a job. Um, but here's what I'm grateful for. I'm grateful for that I have an incredibly stoic husband. Mm -hmm. You know, that when I said to him, I am the love of your life, you can't date anyone else. He said, if you want an opinion about who I date, you need to be alive. Mm -hmm. I loved that you know mm. I laughed and laughed and laughed when he said that I was like okay good point <laughs> and just like you know when I came home after it must have been about it was it was after I had Jackson 
it was about a year after I had Jackson, I got um, tested. I got, um, you know, some tests done to see if I was okay. Um, and I said to Steve, I came back that there's no sign of disease. And he goes, awesome. What's for dinner? <laughs> and it, that is the man that I live with. You know, that, he was not, I sat him down in the first month when I was unwell and I said to him, sweetheart, I can't support you through this. You have to find your own people. You know, and that's how what pragmatic we are. You know, I'm like, I, you, you've got to be here for me and these people are here for me. All you people, you go find your own people. That's your job. I, I'm not I'm not your support network in this. This is too much for me. And they did. None of them brought their stuff to me. They all just brought their happy faces and positivity and all of the things. Um, and I think the pragmaticness sometimes is because here's the thing that I notice is everyone gets caught in the story. They're obsessed with the story. Mm. I literally have people ring me and I can literally tell you their chances of where things are going to go based on how much they're in their story. So you invite me on a podcast, fine, I'll share my story. You meet me down the street, I might give you, you know, you hear about everything else. You don't hear about the story. Right. And yeah. about, you know, like people will say to me, what type of cancer did you have? I don't know. Well, 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 what, what was this? How big was it? Well, I don't know. And they're like, how can you not know? Because I'm obsessed with wellness. That is what I'm obsessed with. I didn't mm -hmm. read the book. I read Miraculous Healings. I found the book about a guy that did energy healing and people had miraculous healings. And I read that thing every day. I made sure every cell in my body knew that it was possible to heal, but never once did I demand that it was my body that did it. I just let my body know that it was possible and to do with it what it needed to do. And I just loved it. I was like, did you? That's amazing. And I was like cheerleading them. I was like, you guys are amazing. <laughs> but not once did I say, I have, you, body, you have to do this. We have to do this. Because that to me is just like, it's too much pressure. So even though we have the the 10 radical, you know, the, the key factors, there's still a little bit of fairy dust involved. You know, like I say to people, it, it's not like you can follow it all and be obsessed about it all and it all just happens. It's the dichotomy in life, which is, yep, these are great, and there's a bit of fairy dust involved that we don't really understand. Yeah, I'm with you, though, and believing in the body's ability to heal and focusing on that wellness right? Rather than talking about your disease or focusing on your disease, or I'm, you know, working really hard to cure or heal my disease. I love to think about I am, I am on that wellness path, I am facing forward to my 100th birthday, and I'm gonna make it. So yeah, good for you. I totally love that. And for me, it's like, I have this really, really clear understanding that it's possible I could die tomorrow. And equally so, I am planning for my 125th birthday. So yeah. it's that, because to me, it's that perspective that gives me, if I think I might die tomorrow, then I, it gives me that perspective to make sure that I do really well with today. Mm. And, and I plan that I'm going to live for a very long time. Yeah, love it. 
love, love, love it. Absolutely. So is there any, you know, you mentioned, um, we haven't talked too much about healing modalities. You did mention in passing exercise and diet change and that you have an herbalist. Um, were there any kind of other modalities that you would like to share? Maybe something that would be unexpected or unusual? I did so many batshit crazy things. Let's hear the wildest. <laughs> I can't. There's one that I literally cannot remember what it's called. Like I literally did it. Like I, when I do things, I'm so present with them. And then once I, I'm done with them, I let them go, you know? And it was just, it was, he was weird and it was weird. And I went along and it was about vibration stuff. And he did things and then I left and I took things and after that one I I must look him up um it, it was to do with vibration it was to do with the vibration of wellness and to do with the vibration of almost disintegrating things that were in my body and after I worked with him there was about a three-week period where I just coughed where I just coughed and brought up stuff from my lungs that was was dark it was a that was I wasn't quite sure then whether I was healing or dying um mm. because one of the two was happening um, and after that, I, I that was quite a significant turning point. But also, one of the most significant turning points was after I got married. And then we went on our honeymoon and we had a week off. And there was something that changed then um, when I came back. That was in May. Um, and then the, the guy that I went to see, that would have been in July. So there was a whole lot of just, you know, I, I ate apricot kernels um, until I woke up one day and thought, I will never eat one of those again. That is not They're okay. disgusting, aren't they? They are just vile. <laughs> Talk about coaching yourself every day. <laughs> I didn't eat them for very long. Um, and, and I'm not suggesting anybody eats them. I, I haven't done the research on them. I just, I did them at the time. Here's the thing that I would say. I did what felt right for as long as it felt right until it didn't feel right anymore. Mm. And then I stopped doing it. One of the greatest gifts I think that I did was I decided not to make wellness a task list. Mm. I was very, I wanted my days. I didn't want, you know, I was allowed maybe two appointments a week and that was it. So there was not this huge financial burden. There was not this huge, um, you know, there was just this kind of rhythm to my day that was about me. And that was really important to me because I just, I just didn't want to be exhausted. I was really tired, you know, like I was fragile enough. So to, to put more pressure on myself just seemed like a strange thing to do. Didn't seem like a, you know, I don't know how to explain it. I don't know how to explain um, what I think wellness is, but like for me, it's meeting my body where it's at. It's not outsourcing my body to modalities or to to other things. It's getting really, really present with my own body and meeting my body where it's at. And healing to me is kind of like this little dance that you do that you know you you don't quite know where the dance is going to end and you don't quite know sometimes you don't even know the dance that you're doing um but you've just got to trust that you keep dancing you know and you dance because you want to not because it's gonna not because it's going to get you a gold medal in a competition and not because you know 
whatever, you, you just dance because you want to. And I think that, you know, when I speak to people, what I'm overcome with or what I notice is how much they're in their story and how much they're outsourcing their health and just how much they're doing it because of the outcome rather than actually I'm doing this because this feels like the right thing for me to do. That would be the three things that I notice that I feel I do significantly different to a lot of people. And do you do something, Di, that helps you to to stay grounded in that place of, I know this is right for me and I know, you know, it's, I'm doing the right thing and I'm doing it for the right amount of time. Like, how do you, and have you always been that in touch with that intuition or that groundedness or whatever it is you call that? If I look back over my life, when I was really young, I was very in touch with it. And then I discovered that not everyone else had that gift, so I shut it down. And then um, it opened back up in my 30s with my first diagnosis. I was like, actually, you've been intuitive your whole life. It's about time you started. You know, it's your choice whether you listen to it or not. Um, I think that having, dare I say, you know, around my second diagnosis, it was just so obvious to me. It was just, it was just there. Um, and I think it's about, for me, it's about some quiet stuff and it's about, you know, not wearing shoes all the time and just because I've always been quite like bare feet. Um, it's about, you know, going for swims and it's just about that connectiveness. But I think having a child for me, um, I, I'd have to say having Jackson slightly disconnected me for some time uh, because I'm so connected with him. I think that's, I think I'm connected in another way. So what I find myself doing now is just going back to those fundamentals of health to reconnect myself and certainly turning 50, um, uh, that was a year and a half ago, I reckon that gift has opened wide open for me again. Like it's almost like I just have no choice in, um, in listening because it's just like this nagging voice. It's like, you're not listening, you're not listening. It's like, okay, I'll listen. <laughs> you know, and it's not easy. You know, like it's like, you know, we're in this hustle culture, we're in this culture that tells us, you know, to achieve and to do these things. And my little voice is going, just go to the beach, it'll be fine. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so, you know, I love working and I love the work that I do, and I have to have it balanced with um with connection and downtime and all of that mm -hmm. sort of stuff. Yeah. That sounds like a healthy balance. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story and so much great wisdom. Is there any last thing you want to share? And do you want to share where people might connect with you if they want to? Yeah, the first thing is um, just thank you guys for the work that you do. You know, just thank you so much. Because um, to be really, this is a, a total selfish comment. It means that I don't have to do it. <laughs> and I know that with the ultimate of love, you know, um, I'm doing other work at the moment and I just really appreciate the fact that you guys do this work. Um, I love a good yarn and a good chat and I love, you know, um, people connecting. Um, they can always email me at di, D-I, at difoster, D-I-F-O-S-T-E-R.com. Um, my website is difoster.com and you can find me on Facebook, LinkedIn or Instagram under difoster.live. Fantastic. 
Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and sharing your story with us. You're an inspiration and we're so thrilled that other people are going to hear it. Pleasure. Thanks. Thanks, Di. And thank you for listening to the Radical Remission Project, Stories That Heal podcast. Once again, I'm Kelly A. Turner, PhD, cancer researcher and founder of the Radical Remission Project. If you found today's episode inspiring, we encourage you to share it with anyone you think would benefit. If you'd like more information about the Radical Remission Project, or would like some support bringing the 10 Radical Remission Healing Factors into your own life, visit us at RadicalRemission.com to find a certified Radical Remission Health Coach or to learn about an upcoming Radical Remission Workshop. And if you'd like to connect with Liz or Carla directly for health coaching, you can visit RadicalRemission.com forward slash about us. Most importantly, be sure to like, share, and please, please, please review this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Your reviews are what allow us to keep finding sponsors, and sponsors are what allow us to keep bringing you these podcasts. So thank you in advance for your reviews. One last thing, would you like to be on our podcast? If you're a radical remission survivor who's been in remission for at least three years, meaning that you either have stable or dormant disease, or perhaps even no evidence of disease. You can contact us at radicalremission.com forward slash podcast. The Stories That Heal podcast is a production of the Radical Remission Project and Cat Productions, hosted by Liz Curran and Carla Mans Giroux, produced by Ryan Giroux, music by Batchbug. Follow the Stories That Heal wherever you get your podcasts.